Music from this episode is available on the Twin Peaks Evangelion Spotify playlist. Check the show notes for a link. Hey, um, can we play a quick game before we get started? Oh yeah, sure. Alright, cool. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to say some character attributes. Um, so some things that are pertaining to some specific characters. I want you to tell me which character I'm talking about as quickly as possible. Alright? <laughs> Alright, let's go. Alright, cool. So first character. Um, he has black hair. Uh, he wears a white shirt. He is emotionally stunted. Dale Cooper. No. He pilots an Ava. Oh, fuck you. <laughs> Shinji. Correct. Okay, second character. Um, she has blue hair. She also pilots an Ava. Yes. Okay. Third clue. Um, she has red hair. She wears an eye patch. She's emotionally unstable. Nadine. Fuck. I thought I was going to catch you out. Fuck you. Ah, you because I was just thinking about that similarity the other day, so fuck you, Craig. Oh, you dick. I was going to... Oh, I had this whole thing... I was hoping you would say Oscar, and I would go, Oh, baby, goddamn, no! <laughs> but no, it was not to be. I'm sorry, oh, our well, synchronization rate is going up at, with every single episode. Ugh. Okay, anyway. Um, welcome, everybody, to Twin Peaks Evangelion. This is a podcast where we talk about Twin Peaks and or Evangelion. Um, I'm Craig, and joining me is... My name is Vincent. Hello, everyone. And, um, Vincent, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the final piece of media that I'm consuming in terms of Twin Peaks, the movie Fire Walk With Me. Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, a 1992 psychological horror film according to wikipedia uh directed by david lynch and written by david lynch and robert engels who was one of the writers on the show this is a prequel film to the to the tv series which it came out this came out in 1992 we can talk about the uh the reception and the um, production of this as we as we sort of go through but yeah this as you said Vinny, this is kind of the final piece for you in terms of uh twin peaks canon um having seen in in the order you've seen it, uh, the return, season one, season two, and now fire walk with me. We'll we'll go through it um, and talk about specific things. But um, overall, what was your kind of what was kind of your impression just um, right off the bat? It's one of those things where it's like I where I'm I'm in this false sense of security where I'm like I know the weird shit that happens. I know the kind of visuals I'm gonna see. Then watching this entire movie, I'm like oh. I am never prepared for anything with Twin Peaks, and I love it because this is one of those movies that is always going to live in my head forever. My, I'm going to instantly remember every single, my first time watching it, just how just my eyes were wide open, my mouth was open. I had to remember to take notes instead of just staring at the beautiful thing I see on my screen or the horrifying mm. thing I see on my screen. And just, uh, this movie is amazing. Yeah. I would echo that. Yeah, I've been a long time Twin Peaks fan, as we all know. I've seen this film a few times, uh, but it just gets me every time. Um, I was lucky enough to see this in a cinema um, last year. They had a little this boutique cinema I, I go to. They had a David Lynch retrospective, and um, I saw this on a big screen. It was just, yeah, it was phenomenal. I it looked great. It sounded incredible. Yeah, it was beautiful and horrifying, as you say. Yeah, so tonally quite a different film from the uh, from the original TV series. Is that a safe thing to say, Vinny? Absolutely. Well, it tonally, 
it has the same tone, but then it just veers off right because it still feels like, oh, yeah, this is Twin Peaks. I know how these character interactions go. Then it just takes a hard right into what this story is about, about the trauma of Laura and just goes full force nonstop until the very end. Mm. And it should be said that the the premise of this film, uh, it is it is a prequel film to the to the TV series. And I guess the main hook of this film is that it sort of chronicles the last seven days of Laura's life. Um, a character who we only saw ever either in a flashback or wrapped up in plastic um, as a corpse. So yeah, tonally fairly different, a lot darker than the TV series. Um, less of kind of the, the quirky humor and the um, some of the more elaborate soap opera um, kind of elements. And I think that is, is by design, you know, as... A character who was deeply troubled and deeply flawed, it got into some really, really dark places, which I think audiences in 1992, especially Twin Peaks fans, who coming off that season finale and wanting some sort of closure or some resolution to that, uh, they weren't prepared for this, which is why I think it was received negatively. Interesting thing to note, Vinny, that this film, yeah, it was a box office failure um, there's reports that it was booed and hissed at, at Cannes, although that's kind of been disputed in later years. Tarantino had a famous quote about this. He was in the audience um, at the premiere of this, and he sort of said that this was his view on it was that David Lynch has gone so far up his own ass that it, he couldn't be redeemed. But interestingly, it was really well received in Japan. Hell yeah. Which begs the question, do you think Hideaki Anno saw this film? Absolutely. Ain't you know who else I think saw this film? Who? Hideo Kojima because of <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland playing Solid Snake in the last Metal Gear games <laughs> absolutely um, Kojima is on record as being a, uh, a Twin Peaks fan absolutely wonderful how does this movie open Vinny it's one of the best openings I've ever seen to a movie of a TV show where it's just a static of a television with the opening credits of the starring and then eventually gets to the directed by David Lynch fire walk with me then that television is immediately destroyed by I think a sledgehammer and then there's mm. a woman screaming <laughs> yeah very cool yeah I, lo I love this opening um, just that extreme close-up of the static and just slowly pulling back and that ominous music playing oh yeah it's great I love it and that TV smash is like really, is really violent. And um, an interesting kind of meta commentary on, it, it's basically right at the start of the film saying, you know, this is not the Twin Peaks you're going to, you you know, uh, this is not the, this, this ain't your mama's Twin Peaks, <laughs> you know, it's going to be uh, a lot more violent, a lot more, uh, a lot darker. You're not going to yeah. see this shit on ABC. Yeah, absolutely. We're sort of shortly after that, we're introduced to a, a federal agent uh, not Dale Cooper, though. No, Mr. Chester Desmond. Hmm, Chet Desmond. Did you recognize the actor? I did not. Okay, no, that's right. It's just you've somehow you sort of have this uh, <laughs> this ability to recognize um, musicians from the early nineties. Uh, <laughs> no, this <laughs> this was uh, this was Chris Isaac, who um, you know had a you know a string of hits in the in the early 90s but he was a bit of a crooner wicked game i think was his biggest song in the early 90s which was extensively used in lynch's film wild at heart and yeah he just he i don't know if he's done much acting beyond this but yeah he is our agent that we follow for the first 30 40 minutes of the of the film which doesn't take place in twin peaks no it takes place in deer meadows 
Deer Meadows, which is in the, the, the great state of Oregon, <laughs> is, uh, is detailed by uh, oh, Director Cole. Yeah, so Deer Meadow is an interesting place. They arrive, well, before they arrive in, uh, in Deer Meadow, he is taken to an airport and he, uh, he meets the Director Cole and uh, the aforementioned Sam Stanley, um, played by Kiefer Sutherland, and they, he's granted a performance um, by an interesting woman named Lil. Um, talk, talk us through this little scene, Vinny. So, like, it's just Gordon doing a typical debrief for Desmond, and then he goes, this is Lil, my mother's sister's girl, puts his hand over his face almost to simulate a mask, and then this woman in this very vibrant red suit comes with a, like, mushed-up face, like, one hand in pocket, other hand gesturing, opening and closing, then she's pacing in place, does a little turn, and then scurries away. Now, what what, what did you think when this scene was playing out? What was your sort of initial impression of this? <laughs> I thought, like, well, either they're going to analyze what every movement was, or that was legit, oh, she, that meant nothing, and it's just a weird shit set piece that David Lynch put in. <laughs> <laughs> and what you know about David Lynch is it could literally go either way. But Lil's erratic movements were, in fact, a, a coded message. When you mentioned the hand going in front of the face, I think the the reading of that was that they were jail bars, because mm. Desmond kind of does sort of say to him, federal, and he sort of nods. So the message from all that was something along the lines of the sheriff of Deer Meadows' uncle is in jail for drugs... Um, because I think a hand in the pocket is oh the hand in the pocket is that they're hiding something. The red dress is the code for drugs. Lil stamping in place means that there's going to be a lot of legwork. Um, her fist opening and closing is that the sheriff um, is going to be belligerent. Oh, and the, yeah, the sour look on their face means that they're going to you know have trouble with the authorities or something something along those lines. Um, and there was pointedly one more piece to uh, Lil's attire, Vinny. What was that? It was this weird thing like a blue rose. I mean, who could ever crack the case on what that meant? Surely someone of genius-level intellect could tell what the blue rose meant. Yep. I 100% agree. Um, Go back to our episode uh, where we looked at, I think, episode 12 uh, of The Return for uh, more on that. Um. During the car ride between um, Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley, uh, they sort of go through all these clues, and um, Sam, being very observant, did notice all of these things. But the Blue Rose was the one thing that uh, that Desmond wouldn't explain. He sort of refused to explain that one, um, which left people to speculate for many years about what it was before it finally got revealed in The Return that the Blue Rose doesn't occur in nature, and therefore the case that they were looking at had supernatural origins. Let's talk a little bit about Deer Meadow. Um, they arrive at the sheriff station in Deer Meadow, and they are met with some very, very friendly law enforcement officials, aren't they, Vinny? Yes, just very like, oh, happy to help. Whatever you need, Mister Agent, I'm I'm at your service, no matter what you need. <laughs> no, very much not the case. Uh, they are met with, and I thought this was interesting. Um, Deer Meadow, I think, and we'll we'll get into this a little bit more, but I think Deer Meadow as a place, as a location, is kind of like the Funhouse version of Twin Peaks, like Mm -hmm. Funhouse Mirror 
version of Twin Peaks. Think about the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department with, you know, Sheriff Truman, who's he's stoic, but he's, you know, generally friendly and wants to do the right thing. Um, you know, contrast that with Sheriff Cable, I think Cable, is his name. Yeah. yeah, who's just a dickhead. You've got the deputy, um, Deputy Cliff, who is kind of like the, the uh, you know, the jackass version of Deputy Andy and the receptionist mm-hmm. who's kind of like the, you know, the, the bad Lucy. Yeah, I mean, there's other stuff in Deer Meadow that we'll get to. Like, this sheriff has a freaking picture of him bending steel in his office. That's the only <laughs> yeah. piece of decoration he has. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that always struck me as really funny, is like, why does he have that there? Is it like an intimidation tactic? Is he just really proud of this? It's, yeah, it's very funny. He's scared of this lanky, balding man who could maybe bend steel. <laughs> And he's so condescending to Chet Desmond and, um, you know, just sort of talks in that real, you know, redneck drawl. It's very funny. So anyway, there's a bit of back and forth between the sheriffs and um, the federal agents. Um, but what, it, what, it, well, we didn't really get into this, but what, uh, what are Desmond and Stanley in Diameter to investigate, Vinny? They're investigating that there was a female in a body bag found on a river bend, so it's Quite similar to what would eventually become Laura Palmer's fate. Hmm. Yeah, so the victim, Teresa Banks, who we later find out uh, was a victim of the same killer that uh, would go on to kill Laura. Notable, too, that Teresa Banks was referenced in the pilot of, uh, of Twin Peaks as, you know, someone that was killed a year prior. So this sort of, um, this prologue sequence, which is set in Deer Meadow, is kind of I guess that story. So we, we sort of go through a bit of an autopsy scene. Um, there's a very horrifying shot of uh, Teresa's nail being <laughs> ripped apart um, to find, you know, under a microscope, which is very gross. So bad. But even, you know, we were talking about inverses um, as well. And I think even the treatment of Teresa's corpse is kind of an inverse of how we saw Laura's dead body portrayed in the, in the series. You know, Laura was, obviously she was wrapped in plastic, um, nude, you know, having floated down the river or whatever. But she had this really kind of serene look on her face. Yeah. Um, you know, she looked at peace, I guess, or, you know, pe- had a peaceful look on her face. By contrast, the treatment of Teresa's dead body is very, very much not that. You know, her mouth is kind of agape. Her eyes are kind of wide open and she's kind of got the slack jawed expression. It's just interesting to think that, you know, we've got all these inverses of, uh, of stuff that we've seen in Twin Peaks. And even the treatment of the corpse kind of falls into that, uh, into that kind of pattern. I mean, also, but like Laura Palmer being like, oh, she was an angel. Like, what could happen to her? Mm. Whereas Teresa Banks is like, oh, she was a drifter. She was probably on drugs. I mean, who cares? Mm. No one's going to claim the body. Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's a real kind of key contrast between the uh, between the treatment of the two female characters. Yeah, absolutely. The agents spend a long time in this in this morgue doing this autopsy. Now, I don't I don't know how long an autopsy usually takes, but right. uh, the sheriff makes a point that it's four thirty and that they close at five. So they're in that room from at least four thirty, and they leave at about three thirty in the morning. So they're there for a good eleven hours. <laughs> I don't know anything about uh you know forensic science um so i don't know if that's you know an an, an accurate kind of time frame for doing this kind of work i would imagine yeah i've it would... been told that you just look at something yell enhance enhance until you get what you want so i don't know what the know. Heck they were doing and you just yeah you just gotta kind of pull your sunglasses off several times a day and you know do that kind of 
do that kind of thing. And usually there's a cute technician who has pigtails or something. Anyway, after that, Sam asks if they're going to find somewhere to sleep. And Chet Desmond's like, nope, we're going to go get some food. Um, and they end up at a lovely establishment, uh, Hap's Diner, which again is kind of an inverse of uh, of the double R. Um, tell us about Hap's Diner, Vinny. <laughs> Hap's Diner is like, first of all, it's adjacent to someone trying to fix a light, like a, <laughs> a little lamp. And it's just that, just to make sure, hey, remember that electricity sound? Well, guess what? That's around here too. And it, once you get into the diner, it's just very cold, like that, like the color scheme isn't as welcoming as the double R and mm-hmm. the person in charge, Irene, isn't as welcoming as Norma. So it really is just like this. This is similar uh, ingredients, but different outcome for what you're expecting of a tale mm. in the Twin Peaks universe. Mm. Yeah. It always struck me as interesting that they, you know, decided that they needed to, to fix that light at kind of, you know, four o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. Yeah. But yeah. And Irene is, just a horrible person (laughs) she's just um yeah she just seems not nasty but just like just over the shit like you know she's probably not in a great circumstance very much the antithesis of uh of norma and uh you know her loving way that she runs her establishment also there's a light inside the interior where it's blasting hep's diner like you're already in the establishment, but you can see the light <laughs> in the corner advertising the establishment. What? Yeah, actually, I noticed that as well. Yeah, there's a few patrons in this in this uh, establishment. Not many. Um, there's an older man with looks like a, a young French woman, which was which was interesting. Uh, but basically, the point of this scene is to extract some information about Teresa and her background, uh, because Teresa did work at the at the diner. Uh, she worked there for about a month. She was a nice girl, but uh, she was constantly late. And Irene suspects that she had a sweet tooth for nose candy. Mm-hmm. There's a very funny kind of moment where Desmond asks if uh, if she ever did drugs with Teresa and Irene's adamant that no, I don't do drugs. And then Sam is just oh, such a doofus. He's sitting there while, uh, Caffeine's a drug. Uh, nicotine's a drug. <laughs> which to which uh, what? How does how does Irene respond? She says it, it is like, who's who's the toehead? <laughs> yeah, who's the toehead? <laughs> which is an insult I'd never heard before. Is that a common thing? I've never States? heard that in my life. Okay, all right then. Not all Americans talk the same, Craig. God, you don't. Oh, no. all right. Well, today I learned. <laughs> Yeah, so we extract this information. Oh, also the other notable thing is that uh, a few days prior to her death, Teresa's arm, left arm, went numb, which mm. is interesting. Very. Desmond also sort of plays a prank <laughs> on Stanley. I felt bad for him, but I still laughed. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Yeah, he, uh, so he's holding a cup of coffee, you know, way too tightly, and um, Desmond asks him what time it is, which you know makes him look at his watch, and he sort of tips the coffee onto him. It's it's quite funny. We then end up at the Fat Trout Trailer Park, mm. and who do we meet here? Carl, he's back. Carl Rod. Well, I love the sign on his door. Under any circumstances, do not disturb before nine a.m. They both freak out after they already knocked like nine a.m. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they sort of quickly pull out their ID, and Carl's just like, what? What? Yeah. 
Very funny. I also love the little moment that they have where, you know, they explain who they are and that they need to see Teresa's trailer and all that. And he kind of like reaches in for the key and they both sort of like go to draw their gun. Like, you know, he's reaching for a shotgun off off screen or something like that. Very he cool. He also describes her trailer as more popular than Uncle's Day at a Whorehouse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. Um, it's the exact kind of thing that you would expect a character like that to say like you know mm. just this curmudgeonly old man so Carl Rod was in The Return as a much older man it's interesting that the Fat Trout trailer park was transplanted from Deer Meadow into Twin Peaks in The Return well he also brings up at one point I've been a lot of places and I want to be here so he's already mm. like hinted that uh, like stuff has gone down to other places he's like managed so he's had to move so most likely mm. after the events of this movie, he moved to Twin Peaks. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting little bit of uh, retconning there. Um, how did you feel about Carl's characterization in this compared to uh, how he was in The Return? A lot more attitude, like when that one yeah. woman was complaining about her hot water, how about I give you a volume? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a lot more sort of just cynical and just um, like kind of like Irene, just kind of over this shit. Yeah. Whereas I think he's sort of mellowed in his uh, in his twilight years a little bit more. Um, I know, heck, perhaps. he was ready to drive Shelley to go get his her daughter back. Like, come on. Yeah, absolutely. Inside Teresa's trailer, we have some interesting stuff. We see that there's a photo of her where she's wearing a certain piece of jewelry. Yes, it's the ring that was the MacGuffin of the return in order to send Mr. C back into the Red Room. Hmm. And I do want to talk about the function and the, I guess, the the logistics of the ring. Not that there's a clear answer, but uh, it's an interesting thing to sort of think about. But yeah, interesting to note, this is kind of the the first appearance of that ring, which uh, didn't show up in the uh, in the original series, but would play a, a big part in The Return. The one ring um, to rule them all. Hmm. Mm, indeed. There's also a really interesting scene or an interesting sort of moment where the camera kind of has this point of view shot that kind of, you know, comes towards the door and then you see an old lady with like an ice pack or something over her face. Just sort of comes to the door and sort of sniffs around a little bit. Yeah, she also has soot over her face, almost like Mm. being the prelude to like a man covered in tar that would eventually be in the return. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's interesting. I don't, I don't quite know what to make of her appearance or, or anything, and I think it was probably more of a something in there to sort of set the mood or, you know, to right. just an interesting kind of image. Uh, yeah. Interesting to think about. There is a fan theory that that woman is actually played by David Lynch, and, <laughs> I mean, facially, it do, you know, there are, there are some facial similarities, perhaps? I was I thinking know. more she looked like the mom, the evil mom from the Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> she she does, yeah. And what was that other movie where she uh, throw mama oh. from the train or something like that? And yeah, something like yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, interesting. Yeah, so I don't know what's going on with her, but uh, that was a an interesting kind of moment anyway. It does kind of shift the mood, though, a little bit. And um, like her appearance kind of brings a, like a sense of uneasiness to the air mm. almost. Yeah, because right before then is when they're joking about the coffee. Like, man, this thing is strong. And yeah. that's when she just completely just disrupts everything. Yeah. Yeah, Carl kind of gets this faraway look in his eyes. And that's where he sort of does his whole speech about, um, you know, I've already been places. And, you know, I've seen things. And I kind of want to stay where I am. Yeah, it's, just, it's a real tone shifter. 
it's very similar to the moment in the pilot where uh cooper's asking sheriff truman about the trees he's like ah those type of trees do we have a toxicology report on the dead girl yeah yeah it is right yeah it just kind of switches on a dime so the next big sort of significant thing that happens is that desmond decides to do a bit more investigating they sort of look around a little bit and he notices a trailer uh, that we later find out belongs to the shelfonts or the tremons mm-hmm. i can't remember he notices a little mound of dirt underneath and what's what's on the mound of dirt the ring but also the craig ring. one thing i want to point out before as he's mm. scoping around the place he sees a telecommunications pole with the number mm. six on it yeah. which has been shown up various places in this movie but also in the return oh, yeah i was gonna ask you about that whether you'd uh whether you'd picked up on that yeah so i think electricity plays a huge role in this and we'll we'll definitely cover it but yeah no it, it is an interesting it is interesting that we sort of get that uh get that as a something that we appointedly shown it's mm. also something that hideaki ano is obsessed with in evangelion there's yes. multiple times where it's just shots of uh, telecommunication poles but mm. also in that making of for thrice upon a time how i told you how there's like this to scale model of like the calm village mm-hmm. There's this moment in that making of where it's just him in the middle of the model rearranging the telecommunication poles as like, yeah, no, it'd right. be like this. Well, actually, no, actually, the city would actually make it like this. And just mm. him rearranging it and everyone just kind of looking like, uh, okay, out of all the things. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I think there's a scene right at the start of End of Evangelion where there's like the there's that shot um, looking up the telephone pole and it's like, you know, toppled over or yeah. something. Is, is he not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. So yes, he has seen this film confirmed. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Desmond finds the ring. He reaches out to touch it. There's kind of a little freeze frame and fade to black. And ooh, and then next, the Liberty Bell. Next scene. <laughs> yeah. We're in Philadelphia. Born and raised. Um. No. We <laughs> just as if Keep the subtitle. Philadelphia's name out your fucking mouth. Oh damn. Um. <laughs> Why'd you slap me? Um, yeah, just in case the uh, the subtitle Philadelphia wasn't uh, enough of a context um, clue, we also get a large establishing shot of the Liberty Bell, um, which is, apart from Will Smith, the only thing I know about Philadelphia is it has that fucking bell, which has a big crack in it. Yeah. Do you know how that bell got a crack? I learned that in like first grade and forgot already. Uh, who cares? <laughs> I think, yeah, I think I saw somewhere that it just, you know, they, they were just, they hit it too hard and it just cracked, I think, one time. I don't know. It's funny. Is it symbolism on the American experiment? Maybe. <laughs> Potentially. Well, it's the Liberty Bill. Statue of Liberty. Maybe the Statue of Liberty had something to do with it. Um, yeah, the Statue of Liberty became an Ava and just used it as a weapon to hit those <laughs> damn commies out of this country. Thank you. Uh, that, that French broad. Um, anyway, we're in Philadelphia. We're in the Philadelphia FBI headquarters in a, probably the most famous scene from this, this film. We see Cooper just basically walking around and he tells, um, Gordon about today's date and that he is very worried because he had a dream about this. Mm-hmm. Then it's him walking around over the, all the hallways and seeing a security camera looking at it. 
then going to the adjacent security room and checking the footage and mm-hmm. going back and forth until he's in the security room, sees himself, and sees a man in a white coat walk past him. Then he starts running to Gordon, where it's yeah. none other Panics. than... Not Denzel Washington, not Tom Hanks, but <laughs> not David a t- Not a tea kettle. <laughs> yeah. Iconic scene. David Bowie is uh, Agent Philip Je- the long-lost Philip Jeffries. Now, Philip Jeffries is not not in a great way, is he? <laughs> no, he is. He is flustered. He doesn't know where he is. We're not going to talk about Judy, and we're not going to bring her up. No one's going to talk about Judy. But what he does talk about is um, a meeting that he had the privilege of attending um, because he somehow ended up in the space which was apparently above a convenience store. Mm. You know, when people think about, you know, David Lynch as a surrealist filmmaker and, you know, some of the weird shit that happens, you could probably just point to this scene as one of the <laughs> best examples of this. What do we, I mean, where do, where do we even start with this scene? So. There's a meet, it appears to be a large, decrepit-looking room. Looks like a warehouse or something, an abandoned warehouse. There's a bunch of people slash lodge spirits yeah. around in various seats or tables or soap boxes. Uh, we've got a couple of woodsmen with long beards. We've got the um, we've got the old lady and her grandson. Uh, we've got Bob and the man from another place sitting at a green formica table uh, with some bowls of cream corn and stuff in front of them. Uh, we've also got this really interesting character in a red suit and a bright white face with a long nose holding what looks like a slingshot. And he's and just dancing. He's referred to as the jumping man because he kind of like jumps <laughs> up onto that box, I guess. <laughs> so three jump man. Super Mario, Michael Jordan, and this guy. <laughs> and Drake, apparently. Um, <laughs> Fuck that guy. Yeah, exactly. Did you... Okay, how many of these characters did you recognize from either the, either the original series or The Return? I remember the old lady and her son who can make cream corn disappear. Mm-hmm. I, I remember the man from the other place. I remember Bob. But then mm-hmm. I looked at the bearded guy. I'm like, I could believe that guy grew up to be the man covered in tar. I could mm-hmm. believe it. Right. Did you recognize the jumping man? No. Because he does make a couple of appearances in The Return. Very, very fleeting, though. Yeah, there's some very, very quick shots of him. And I don't fully know what his deal is, but he's a, an intriguing presence. Let's say. Very. Yeah, and I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole because we'll be here for another two hours. So, uh, <laughs> But yeah, interesting, um, interesting place. And they... There's a bit of dialogue back and forth. Um, just trying to remember some of these lines here. There's stuff around the the formica table with this ring I the wed. I think the woodsman. Do the woodsman say a couple of things here? No, he was just clapping with the beat to yeah, the next just... the dancing guy. Yeah, right. But also the arm brought up the Garmin Bozier. Mm. Mm. And we'll uh, there'll be a, a more thorough explanation of what Garmin Bozier is towards the end of the film, so we can we'll leave it for that. But um, yeah, basically, yeah, they just sort of talking in all these all this abstract uh, all this abstract sentences. Uh, we also get Philip Jeffries' narration over the top of this, where he says things like, um, "We live inside a dream," which we've mm-hmm. heard in the return. There's a lot of static. Um, there's oh the the little boy, he sort of points and says, "Fellow victim." Which is an interesting line. 
because you could read it a couple of ways. It appears that he's pointing to Bob, is my mm-hmm. read on that. And he's either, it could be like a statement that Bob has become a victim, like he's fallen a victim, or it might be like a direction, like you must fell a victim. Like, you, like you'd say, you'd, you know, you'd fell a tree, like, you know, cut right. down a tree. You must, you know, find another victim or something like that. Yeah, really ambiguous. There's all this kind of static overlaid, you know, just lots of screeching. There's some horrible close-up shots of people's esophagus and all this yeah. kind of nasty shit. Yeah, it was really gross. Um, lots of fisheye lens stuff going on. There's a weird moment where the kid puts a mask in front of his face and then takes it off and it's a monkey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. In which, Craig, I want to tell you, so mm. before this movie, in my YouTube recommendations, is just like, you know, Ava and Twin Peaks ever since we've started this venture. So mm-hmm. there's a few where it's like David Lynch acting like a madman for seven minutes. And there was <laughs> yep. one ro- moment, I don't know what interview, whatever it is, it's David Lynch in the room with that monkey. He just stares at it. It's making monkey noise and he just goes, yes. <laughs> I thought, why the heck did they put him in a room with a monkey? And now I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could be that. It could be could be from Inland Empire. Actually, there was a, a monkey at the end of that. Um, anyway, this is a, a very overwhelming scene, but it's fairly short. Like it only lasts a minute or so, a minute or two, and then it's over. Jeffries has disappeared again. Yeah, and, and the front desk has no record of him ever coming in. Exactly. But then Gordon and Cole, um, Cooper sort of check the tape, and he was there. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a very abrupt scene, and it kind of comes out of nowhere and ends as abruptly as it arrives, basically. Yeah. I mean, mm. Bowie's great in it. He's, he, he gives off that a man is rattled, he's shaken, he's disturbed by what he's seen, and he's just begging for it to be listened to, and then he's gone. I mean, it was probably yeah. it was just one day with Bowie, but he gave them everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, he's very manic. Thinking about where Philip Jeffries kind of ended up in the return, um, you know, as essentially a spirit, I guess, that's kind of contained within this uh, machine that looks like a tea kettle. It's easy to kind of imagine that perhaps on his way to becoming this transcendent being, he sort of had to go through this this process where he gets you know unhinged from time and space and you know reality the fabric of reality as we know it which right. would cause somebody to question their existence and you know and ha- and kind of have that kind of uh, you know erratic kind of response i wish the giant tea kettle had the hawaiian shirt on <laughs> yeah yeah great uh, great sense of style as uh, bowie was known for i mean come on he could make anything work it's fuck- david bowie come on absolutely now, the old lady and her grandson, um, they go by a couple of names, um, Shelfont or Tremont. Do you recognize those names from The Return? Not immediately. No? I just remember just the scene with the Meals on Wheels and going to them, but I I can't remember a specific thing from The Return. Mm. The very last scene in The Return, where they go back to Laura's house, and the lady open, answers the door, and Cooper asks her what her name was, she sort of says that her name is Alice Tremont. Oh. And that the house was previously owned by the Shelfonts. Mm-hmm. So right at the very end of this long narrative, uh, you sort of get this throwback to those names. And I don't know if there's anything to that beyond just a, a casual throwback or if there's if that sort of ties into the lore in some way. 
but well, um, yeah, because yeah, you get to Cooper, then going to the trailer park and going to the empty spot of where Desmond disappeared. Mm. And it, oh, it used to be Tremont and Shelfont, but then also in the original series. When Donna went back to talk to them, it was someone else at that location. Mm. And no, I'm the Tremont. Like, no, what are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. It's an old lady and a young kid. Yeah, so there's some kind of fuckery going on with the, uh, the Tremont slash Chelfonts. Um, so yeah, Coop goes back to the tr- um, to the trailer park. He sees that the trailer is no longer there. Has a little bit of an, a back and forth with Carl, where he sort of says, "Hey, that's not where I told you to go." And he's like, "I'm not going there." Where are you going? Oh, I'm, I'm going over here. God, you people are confusing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the trailer's gone, but Desmond's car is still there and it has some words written on the windscreen. Let's rock. Let's rock. Well, we could, but we're recording a podcast right now, Vinny, so maybe oh. maybe afterwards. No, yes, you're right. The words let's rock are written on the uh, on the car. Uh, which is something that Diane said in The Return, um, but was also most famously the first words uttered by the man from another place in the first of Cooper's dreams about the Red Room. Also, it seems to be written in lipstick. Yeah, I noticed that too. Yeah, when I first sort of watched the film, I wondered if it just, you know, was someone's, you know, someone had just sort of written it in the dust with their finger or whatever. But uh, no, it does appear to be either paint or lipstick or something like that. And then also I put after this scene is when he Cooper records his thing for Diane. He goes, Diane, it's currently 4.20 p.m. And I put, nice. <laughs> I think I'm high! <laughs> Marijuana's a drug. <laughs> It's a gateway, I've been told. Ever since elementary school, I've been told it's a gateway. (laughs) Well, you should dare to do the right thing. But as the song goes, who knows where or when. Um, That is in reference to when the killer might strike again. Um, Hard cut to Welcome to Twin Peaks sign and the Twin Peaks music. Hey, we're back in Twin Peaks, and it's one year later. Now, Craig, let me tell you, when this happened, I'm like, oh, okay, now we're getting into it. But also, when I heard the music, I'm like, okay, please be the only music coming back. If I hear, and I, I'm turning the shit off. <laughs> um, I'm going to go out on a little bit of a tangent here. I read something really funny the other day. I don't know where where this was, if it was on Facebook or on Reddit or something like that. Someone was making the argument that James recording that song is actually what saved the world. Because if he hadn't recorded that song, he wouldn't have performed it at the Roadhouse. The woman, Renee, wouldn't have been moved to tears by it. He wouldn't have felt a kinship with her. He wouldn't have gone to her and, you know, tried to talk to her. He wouldn't have got beaten up by her husband. Freddie wouldn't have punched the husband in the face and, you know, rattled his brain around. They wouldn't have ended up in the prison uh, and they wouldn't have been in the right place to defeat Bob. So (laughs) thank you, James, for recording that song and uh, saving, saving the world from Bob. I cannot sanction this buffoonery. <laughs> Can you sanction the fact that Donna looks a little bit different from yeah. the way that she did in the original series? I was, I was, I was like, ooh, like, ooh, Laura, she's walking down. And then I'm like, then it's like, oh, she's picking up Donna. Then I see this woman close the door. I'm like, oh, cool, it's Donna. A few more steps. Is that Donna? More steps. That is not Donna. 
<laughs> Hashtag not my Donna. Uh, how, how did you feel about Maura Kelly as Donna in this film? I think she's fine, but ultimately it's like other Donna I prefer. You do? Okay. I do. What's behind that? Do you think you just spent more time with her or just yeah, kind of what you know it, it's because it's just so much about their it's justifying that they're best friends across this mm-hmm. entire movie and it's hard for me to do that when it's a completely new face and a completely different performance than what i'm used to about mm. this other girl who was trying to solve laura's murder you know this was the face mm-hmm. that was constantly getting into trouble sneaking into places trying to you know get avenge her best friend and mm-hmm. now i'm trying to create that relationship into this new performance i mean it's nothing against her there's there's a reason why she was hired for it but ultimately mm. i'm like eh, this is this is a, a folly i have for this entire movie right interesting i really really like this donna i really really like firewalk with me donna um i think that she embodies the just the that wide-eyed innocent you know version of donna i really like that portrayal and uh, i think that moira kelly did a fantastic job um i don't know if lara flynn boyle would have having played the role a certain way for so long if she would have been able to sort of take it back to that version of donna sort of before all that history mm-hmm. yeah so I don't know. I really, I really like Moira Kelly's uh, performance as Donna. But also, neither Donna returns for the return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> the first couple of minutes of this segment, uh, the Twin Peaks, you know, last seven days of Laura's life, kind of thing. Um, within about two minutes, you kind of get the. It really gets hammered in the point that you know this ain't your mom's Twin Peaks. Um, you, we see Laura go off to the bathroom, take a massive bump of cocaine, and mm. then 30 seconds later, she's walking out of the shower and has her boobs out, um, making out with James. Which is insane to me. How? How in inside a high school do you get away with this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. But yeah, very much making a point that, you know, this is not the version of Twin Peaks that you'd see on network TV. Um, it's different. It's darker. There's, you know, we're getting away with more extreme stuff here yeah then you get that laura and donna just talking you know shooting the shit and how they're already setting up the donna and james stuff where she's like no but Mm. james is nice he's so handsome he's so sweet and laura's like yeah whatever then that's when you get donna asking her about what she does at night and then just laura goes nighttime is my time Mm. and i had a question for you about this Vinny, do you think james is sweet and do you think james is gorgeous two-part question I, I, I'm going to take your silence as a resounding yes. Thank you. Um, before yeah. we got to that scene, um, <laughs> before we get to that scene, we have a really fun scene with uh, with Bobby, though, where Bobby's kind of, you know, angry at Laura, like, where were you? You know, we were supposed to catch up. You know, where have you been kind of thing? And Laura sort of does, you know, makes fun of him. You know, oh, you, I was standing right behind you, but you were too dumb to turn around. And if you turned around, you get dizzy. Um, he gets really mad at this, but... I love this little bit of acting that Cheryl Lee does here where she sort of looks at him and she sort of gives him this little smile and says, come on, Bobby. Mm. And you can see his anger just kind of like break and he's just smitten. It's so, so good. It's just this tiny little moment, but I love it. And he sort of does this weird backwards walk. (laughs) He's so fucking happy. (laughs) 
so weird but also so like, love. his thing like how dare you are you cheating on me because i'm cheating on you but you can't cheat on me <laughs> yeah exactly such a jackass but like this. yeah shirley how is she not just a household name how has she not been in multiple like nominated movies or other television mm. shows because she is phenomenal it is insane how mm. amazing she is in this movie how is she just just known for this and nothing else yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think I s- strongly think that this is one of the best performances for any actor in any, Ever. not just because I'm a big tri- Twin Peaks fan, but I think just the, the range that she has in this and just the harrowing material that she has to work with, she just knocks it out of the park and it just floors me every time I watch it. It's phenomenal. Um, I'll get to more of the you know, response to this uh, later on, but um, mm-hmm. let's let's sort of keep falling. Uh, let's let's uh, let's keep cracking on with this. Um, another question for you, Vinny: If you were falling in space, <laughs> do you think that you would a uh, slow down eventually? B Do you think that you would uh, go faster and faster, and the angels wouldn't find you? Or C Do you think you would end up in suspended animation for 14 years and come back to a world in which your fellow pilot now has an eye patch (laughs) (laughs) see with my luck (laughs) see oh you're so fucked up um (laughs) yeah that's a i really like that moment where there's where donna just sort of randomly asks her this question and um and Laura just, there's that close-up of Laura. She's just staring into the space that she's falling through and just without even hesitating, just says, faster and faster. And the angels, they wouldn't find you because they've all gone away. And Donna's just like, huh. Hmm. <laughs> now, if you were having a heart-to-heart with your best friend, um, with your best friend Craig, and um, he said something along those lines, would you sort of check in and sort of see if he was doing okay <laughs> or would you just kind of brush it off and go yeah hey, uh, it's an interesting response anyway should we get some cookies or something or <laughs> yeah fuck that let's get some cookies who feelings i'm a man i'm not supposed to feel anything but also craig is this thing about falling through space like then in the return you do get cooper just falling through space mm. and he goes faster and faster until he <laughs> face plants into a <laughs> into a <laughs> purple room (laughs) very fun so after the scene laura goes back to her house and she's just sort of bopping along in her room listening to some jazzy tunes smoking a cig and she pulls out her diary from her secret hiding place where she notices that there's something missing some pages missing some pages if you will. Yeah, there's some pages missing. And I've written here that I love what the music does, but I can't actually remember what that was specifically. I think it was like the music, like the the, the jazzy music that she's listening to on her radio or whatever still plays, but there's this like this real sort of low end kind of like droning noise kind of comes up as she realizes that the pages are, are missing. Yeah, I love that. She makes a beeline for Harold's house. Um, were you surprised to see that Harold made an appearance in this? I was surprised when I'm like, of course, because you have to set up that he has the diary. It's mm. it, as like 
this movie is full of setup, but I I don't hate it because like yeah, no shit, we should set up all these things where we set up the mystery that everyone was on. You know, the, of Donna mm. being like, wait, how did this guy get a diary of Laura? Like, mm. no, we need to actually set this up because it it's a prequel. The web of Laura's life is just so big and tangled. I I do like that we see all the little ends of it. Mm. So um, how do things go down at Harold's house? She's confiding in him that sh- the pages are missing. She knows it's Bob. Bob is mm-hmm. real and that he he's doing these things. And then she, she just breaks my heart when she just goes, Bob is real. He's been having me since I was 12. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's... Uh... That's very grim because I think that was kind of preceded by Harold was sort of saying, but you know, but Bob's not real, Laura, you know, he's not real. Yeah. Which sort of leads to that really confronting line, which um, you never got in the original series. Like you knew that dark shit was happening with Laura, but um, to sort of have her say it explicitly like that is really, really icky and really, um, yeah, really traumatic. She kind of does this thing where she sort of says fire walk with me and my god this yeah. <laughs> this this jump scare gets me every fucking time because she's kind of got the she's got the the white face she's got like the yellowish kind of teeth and the dark lipstick and the manic eyes it's and it's just that quick shot Ooh. And then she's like immediately snaps out of it and is crying and it's war. But yeah, that, I'm just getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it. It's very, very creepy. Like David Lynch is the best at jump scares. Hands yeah. Down. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I mean, you could kind of, you could probably analyze what is going on with the edit and with the, you know, with the sound and all of that right. kind of stuff to sort of build it up. You could probably, you know, there's probably video essays out there that sort of analyzes all this stuff, but He's, you're right, he's just so effective at it. He doesn't do them that often, but when he does, they're just so effective. Yeah, man. What's the what's the next thing that happens in the film? You get a brief shot of like electricity and the red room curtain and Bob saying how he wants to taste through Laura's mouth. He wa- I want to taste through your mouth. Yeah, which is Blech. a real cr- yeah, it's a creepy thing to hear. And it's also, I guess, preceded by the uh, the ceiling fan as well, which is a you know yeah. recurring motif. Uh, which we've seen in the original series and also in The Return as well. It's almost like the ceiling fan is kind of like a symbol, I guess, of Bob's arrival or like a, uh, you know, it's kind of foreshadows that Bob's on his way or that, Mm -hmm. you know, Bob's around. And then we cut to Cooper and Albert antics. Yeah, talk us through the scene. So it's Cooper just sitting down with Albert and he's talking about how he has a feeling of this killer that he, he, about this killer striking again, the killer that he told diane a year earlier like i think he's gonna strike again then albert's like okay i'll bite tell me about it how do you feel what do you predict okay so i predict that you're gonna help me on this case that is a young Mm -hmm. woman she's doing drugs and she's sexually active and then albert goes god damn coop you're describing half the high school girls in america yeah (laughs) that always cracks me up this then leads into uh, one of the best transitions i think in the whole film albert asks him well what okay all right, what's she doing right now? And Cooper's just thinks about it for a second. He thinks she's preparing an abundance of food, and he kind of looks at him quizzically. And then, smash cut to Laura's walking out of the double R with some trays of food in her hand. It's so good. 
I know we get some a little bit of Shelly, a little bit of Norma. It's like, oh, yes, please. Yeah. Oh, oh Norma's so pretty. <laughs> she is. She was a babe. I really like this little Shelly moment here where Shelly's kind of like pretending to be busy looking at some receipts or something. And, um, you know, Heidi's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> just hemorrhaging blood out of her nose. Like that, Seriously, take her to a hospital, please. I know, please. That, that rag that she's got is just like sopping wet and like bright she red. She looks like she just was in a boxing match with 90s Mike Tyson. She was in a boxing match with uh, Freddie from <laughs> The Return. Um, she, yeah, but um, Shelley's kind of, you know, Norma's sort of saying, oh, you know, can you help Laura with the Meals on Wheels? And Shelley's like, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of, um, you know, she's just like is scrambling to not be in the same space as, as Laura. Um, you know, which we know is because there's some antics going on with Bobby. And Norma's just not having any of it. She's just like, you're not that busy, Shelley. Come on. <laughs> so Shelley's like, oh, okay. But I just, oh, yeah, I love that little moment. I mean, we don't get much of Shelley or Norma in this, yeah. but uh, that was just a really cool little moment there. I really liked it. Laura doesn't end up doing the Meals on Wheels, though. She is preoccupied with something else that happens in the parking lot yes of all people to just stroll up out of the blue on a bright sunny day is creepy grandma and her creepy psychic kid how they have a present for her and they give her this frame and it's a photograph of a door in a room an an open door in a room that has flower wallpaper on it Mm. i think this will go well in your room and then The little creepy little fucker with his with his mask goes, the man behind the mask is looking for the book with the pages torn out. He is going towards the hiding place. He is under the fan now. Very creepy. And, you know, this has only just occurred to me. They were about to go out on the Meals on Wheels program. It would have been really weird to see one of the people that you're delivering meals to just rock up into the car park like uh isn't the whole point of what we're doing right now to get because you can't come out for me yeah so what's going on (laughs) so it just occurred to me laura basically gaps it you know she sort of tells shelly you know i can't do the meals on wheels i just can't and she i think this is I think this is Laura's car that they're using. So you just kind of yeah. like abandons her car. She just dips her car and <laughs> pegs it to her. Like, you, you try... Uh, this annoyed me so much, actually. I, I uh, Just her being like, hmm, what's faster? Me in a car or me hoofing it across <laughs> town? Uh, come on, Laura. I don't know. I, mean, I guess she was just probably panicking, as I probably would have at that time. Um, yeah. You know, just clutching this fucking creepy painting just gapping it across town at the house we get some really cool point you know kind of sweeping point of view shots which is soundtracked by the whooshing of the fan we end up in laura's bedroom and someone's there like bob himself is just a walking jump scare him anywhere is going to be creepy and just Mm -hmm. so unsettling ah yeah with that sort of lecherous grin and the way he's kind of like you know hunched over Ugh. yeah creepy laura screams bob screams we get a, another gross gastrointestinal close-up of his uvula and laura just bolts she runs and hides in a bush <laughs> or no actually no more accurately she hides near a bush <laughs> yeah just a couple of houses she's down. in plain sight <laughs> 
And who comes home? I mean, who comes outside? Who comes walking outside of the house but her mm. own father, Leland? I love this bit of acting from Cheryl Lee here, where she's she just goes through so much, like the whole scope of emotions, with just saying, you know, oh God, no, it's not him, it's not him. She sort of goes from you know this hysterical kind of outburst right into this kind of like you know trying to convince herself, like she's like, no, 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 it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And just, yeah, you can just see just how emotionally churned up inside she is. It's, oh, it's brilliant acting. Also, I want to say something. If, mm. if Leland was so much creepier to me because it's weird. I found him more creepy with the dark hair versus the lighter hair we get in the mm. series. I don't know why. It was just him being looking completely different than what I'm used to just got me, just made him more of mm. a presence and a threat for me to watch this movie yeah you're right i think i mean i think the light here is kind of more i don't know almost more cartoonish in a way mm-hmm. yeah whereas this is just a lot more menacing and um i'll talk about ray wise's acting um soon because there's a scene that is you know probably some of the best acting in the whole film coming up but yeah no he like cheryl lee he did a great job in this so Laura runs to Donna's house and slams on the door and when Donna opens, she's in hysterics. Do you recognize the scene from anywhere? It was the freak out from earlier when it was uh, from the return when who opened the door? God, what was the mo- who opened the door? And then it was just that moment. It was when Gordon Cole was in his hotel room. And I think he that's was, right. Yeah, he'd been drawing the weird deer thing. And then Albert knocked on his door, and he opened the door, and it just hard cuts to that, that shot. So weird. So all this time, I was thinking, like, okay, I'm going to see that moment. I'm going to see, like, Cole was there for that moment, and he's just somehow remembering this. But no, Gordon is nowhere near that, yet he sees it in the future. Mm, yeah, I don't quite know what to make of that. Um, it's, you know, there's probably essays and video essays yeah. around uh, around all this kind of stuff, but uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting decision. The next big scene is the Palmer family, Laura and Leland, sitting down to dinner, and this is one of those really menacing scenes that you know nothing super violent happens, but there's just this sense of dread as this plays out. I I struggle getting through this. I'm like I. I wanted to turn it off because just Leland, just the, the just mm. the intensity he goes from like just like sternness to just pure just abuse. Just grab me your hand, like oh your hands filthy. You didn't wash your hands before dinner. Like yeah, she just walked through the door and you told her to sit down. Of course she didn't just wash her hands. You yeah. freak. And then it's just him just getting just louder and meaner sees a necklace and goes is this from your lover and just Mm. starts pinching away at her face it's very unsettling and you can kind of see bob's influence here where he's is just you know he's he's condescending towards her as well like you know he's like bobby didn't give you this and just yeah, it's kind of like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, um, you know, where he's just kind of like that real sort of like menacing low tone and, you know, he's not saying anything inherently threatening or anything, but just the right. inflection in his voice and just the general creepiness of, of the atmosphere. Very, very icky. And I don't like but it. But also, what hit me was uh, Sarah's involvement was 
it was just she only butted in to be like uh they don't call them lovers in high school but like she the way her her like not really intervening is like oh this happens a lot in the mm. Palmer household him just mm. outbursting at her so yeah is Sarah just at the point where like I'm not even gonna try it's gonna happen again let's talk about Sarah for a second um because there there are some scenes later on in the film um but you know might as well talk about it now you kind of question how complacent sarah is in all this um you know it seems like she's stuck in this place where she knows stuff is happening she knows on some level that stuff is happening and it feels to me like she's either trying actively trying to suppress it or she's trying to look the other way or pretend it's not happening i mean there's there's a reference later on in the film where donna kind of says something along the lines of, well, you know, God, your mom smokes a lot of cigarettes or, you know, something like that. Yeah. And the f- there's a scene, I don't know if it's this one or it might be later on. And I think it's actually later on in the film at the breakfast scene where, you know, there's been another argument or something and she just sits there and smokes a cigarette. Yep. It's almost like the act of smoking a cigarette is a way to sort of push the reality of what's happening away a little bit. You know, it's a way of sort of mm-hmm. keeping the wolf from the door almost. So, um, yeah, there's been a lot of debate and a lot of discussion around Sarah's role in what happened to Laura and whether she could have done more, if she yeah. should have done more. But ultimately, I think it's a, I mean, I think it's, you know, part of the tragedy of this whole story. Obviously, it would lead to a character like we see in The Return that is just yeah. racked with guilt and leads this just pained existence kind of existing not living yeah it's heavy stuff man <laughs> and um and I'm, I'm sure that for a lot of families that sort of you know a lot of people that you know have this kind of trauma and abuse in their lives it's probably way more common right. yeah it's it's horrific stuff it's just the cycle of abuse just told in a fancy way but in, at the heart of it it's just like it's it's just a family you're supposed to be family but mm. they sometimes family is the ones who make it worse yeah absolutely and the moment where laura does go upstairs and wash her hands and she's just sobbing at the sink i think it's just so powerful like you know it's not like a exaggerated like you know over the top kind of kind of thing she's just sort of just silently sobbing and um but just so much pain in her facial expression and stuff yeah, like Cheryl Lee cannot be praised enough for her performance in this, like for real. And then the cycle of abuse continues where Leland just walks up to her and goes, I love you. He mm. never says I'm sorry. He just reaffirms, I love you. Is this is this the next scene where they, they're going to bed? So yeah, they're going to go to bed and he just goes, I love you. And then mm. before Laura goes to bed, she goes to pick up the frame outside next to the bush she was yeah, hiding right. next to. Yeah. There is, just before that happens though, I think there's a moment here, which I think, which is kind of what I was referring to before with uh, Ray Wise's amazing acting. He's sitting on the bed and his face is kind of scrunched up in anger. Mm, Yeah. And then just over the course of about 30 or 40 seconds, it just softens and gets to a state where, you know, his expression is, you know, completely just loosens and he starts sobbing and that to me was such a powerful moment right 
you can see Bob basically leaking out of him. Like, you know, any, yeah. the rage that Bob has or, you know, the influence that Bob has, it just, you know, Bob's decided that, it, you know, he's bored. He wants to shift somewhere else. And it, you can just see that draining out of his face. And it's just such a powerful moment of just a still shot. It's so good. My God. And I think that's that's kind of the moment where he kind of realizes that he's hurt Laura, yeah. you know, and then goes in and sort of says, you know, I'm, you know, I love you. And okay. and like you said, he doesn't say I'm sorry, which again is indicative of, um, you know, people that are trapped in these re- abusive relationships. You know, often that is right. what will happen. You know, the abuser will lash out, um, act abusively, and then, you know, feel some sense of remorse perhaps and, you know, promise to be better or, you know, try and make up for it or whatever. Um, and yeah, that cycle just keeps repeating. Laura kind of has a, I think it's a dream. Yeah. Where she sort of transitions into the painting. You, you sort of described it before, like, you know, the, the hallway with the floral wallpaper and stuff. Do you recognize that space at all? I didn't. I only recognize it from the Blu-ray case, which is basically just that picture <laughs> just around it, which is, nice. I think is funny. <laughs> I think it's supposed to be the same kind of space that uh, that Mr. C goes to on his way to visit Philip Jeffries. You right, know how he... it's similar, like a maze of door corridors with yeah. just dark and big. Oh. yeah. He sort of he sort of goes up the um, goes up the staircase, and I think it's the similar wallpaper. It's just way darker, so it's harder to tell. Right. But I think it's the same wallpaper. That's that. In- that's an interesting place, and I, I can't remember exactly how this plays out. But I think what happens is Laura sort of goes through, and she's sort of going in one direction, and then the boy is there, and he kind of directs her in another way, and the yeah. red curtains appear. Mm-hmm. That's yes. kind of what happens, eh? Yeah, yeah. We end up in the red room. Cooper comes through. Is this where he has a discussion with the arm? Yes. Yeah, and um, they talk about the ring, or he, the arm shows him the ring, and. Uh, Cooper sort of looks directly at the camera, looks at the audience and looks at Laura, I guess, and says, Laura, don't take the ring. Now, do you think this was good advice? I let me, let me put it another way. What do you think the function or the purpose of the ring is? It is somehow connected to weakening Bob because in the return, it is used to return him to the Red Room, where mm-hmm. in this... It seems to stop some kind of process for him to take over a body that is has this ring on. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any clear answer to this question. Um, yeah. I don't think it's it's ever explicitly made clear about what the function or the purpose of the ring is. And there's a, lot, a, a ton of theories out there. Right. I think it's generally accepted that the ring is a means of transporting people or spirits between, you know, our physical plane of reality and the red room. You know, like in the return, for instance, um, Mr. C makes Ray put on the ring before he shoots him, yeah. and then Ray ends up in the red room. Uh, also, when Mr. C is shot, Cooper puts the ring on his finger, and he ends up in the red room. That's kind of one function of it, I guess. At the end of the film, at the end of this film, the fact that she's wearing the ring means that Bob can't possess her. That's why he kills her, basically. Yeah, the fact that the arm sort of makes a reference to, you know, with this ring, I, the weird, you know, maybe the ring kind of marries you or sort of promises you to the red room in some way. Mm-hmm. Whereas that was not part of Bob's 
plan or Bob's objective. Like Bob wanted right. Laura as a vessel. You know, if she was tied to the Red Room in some way, that that wasn't wasn't possible. So yeah, there's a lot to grapple with there, <laughs> and uh, yeah. and no clear answer. But um, I feel like Cooper's in you know instruction, you know, or plea with Laura, to, you know, not to wear the ring. I think that's probably misguided. Right. On the face of it, maybe if she didn't put the ring on, maybe she would still be alive. Maybe. But if she was still alive, would she then be a host for Bob? And, you know, what kind of existence is that? It's probably not a good one. Anyway, when Laura kind of wakes up from her little dream, she's got a a visitor in her bed. But right before that, she kind of gets up, starts leaning up, and she tries to move her body, and she's carrying her left arm over. Mm. Her arm is numb. Yeah. And I think that's tied to the ring as well, because um, yeah. you see in the return that you know Dougie, like the the actual Dougie that wears the green jacket, you know his arm is numb and he's wearing the ring, and then he, you know, when he he gets sucked back into the red room. So yeah, you're right, and um, yeah, but uh, but Laura's got a visitor in her bed. Who who's in the bed with her? It's Annie from the future, all bloodied up. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> and she just says this one thing. My name is Annie. I've been with Dale and Laura. The good Dale is in the lodge. He can't leave. Write that in your diary. Mm. Which we see paid off in the return, don't we? We do. We, where it, where our good Hawk and all our other sheriffs are like, what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's also paid off where it's uh, Leland holding those pages and then in the return, it's like, oh, he slipped it into one of the stalls of the bathroom, which mm. we never saw him go into the bathroom when he was at the sheriff's station. So No. I love the thing, because Annie kind of disappears, and then I, lo- I love this next sort of thing that happens where... It's like she wakes up again, and then the ring is in her left hand now. And there's kind of like this, like, you know, build-up of sound, like this sort of like... And then she closes her hand, it just like, like cuts to silence. Like, it just sort of goes like... You know? Um, it's, it looks really cool. Yeah, so she is now in possession of the ring, apparently. What happens next? Uh, Bobby does a drug deal. He, you know, arranges with, I think he rings Leo. Does he? Yeah, he yeah. rings Leo for drugs. Because then... Leo is yelling at Shelly for not properly scrubbing a tile. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> that's right. And I mean, given the condition of their house, that's that's pretty funny. I really like this it's, that's this is an interesting scene actually like it's only a little moment but um he sort of says something like this is where we live shelly and shelly's just like oh as if i didn't know like you know real yeah. sarcastic <laughs> and dismissive which we've never really seen from her before you know Whoa. especially interacting with leo like she's always been really scared of leo or really sort of on tenterhooks with him so it was interesting to kind of see her and then even like he's like you know well you're gonna do this properly and she's like oh i gotta get ready for work man like you know yeah <laughs> and, and then he sort of like you know that's when he kind of gets real abusive with her and she sort of like backs off it but um to see her just sort of like she doesn't push back on his bullshit at all but just a little bit you know yeah so bobby arranges uh for jacques connection or to meet up with jacques connection in a couple of days um to score some more blow <laughs> and jacques like makes fun of him oh you only call me when you're desperate are you desperate baby <laughs> yeah Jacques so slimy, so gross. So bad. Donna goes to visit Laura's house. 
presumably Friday night or Saturday night or something. Laura's home alone. Donna asks her, where are the cookies? Did you pick this up? Yeah. What is... What? (laughs) Presumably they're talking about her parents because she sort of says, well, Fred and Ginger, they're out dancing. You know, like... So I'm guessing she's referring to where her parents are right now. But where are the cookies? Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, was this some, like, 1950s slang that David Lynch used to say when he was a kid? Or what? It's got to be, right? (laughs) It has to be. It's something David Lynch heard growing up in Montana. He's like, I'm going to use that later in life. Yeah, absolutely. Laura goes off to the roadhouse. Um, She has a fleeting moment with the log lady. I was so happy to see her again. Yeah. It was a really touching kind of moment. You know, she's she's going into the space where, you know, bad shit's going to happen and, you know, gross stuff is is right. on her way. Because in the original series, Log Lady never really cared. In the return, she cared because she was calling Hawk to be yeah. cautious because, you know, bad things going to happen. But in the original series, she was more, like, annoyed with everyone because she knew, like, oh, no one's going to take me seriously, so why should I give them advice? But yeah. in this one, she genuinely wants to help Laura. Hmm. It's a real touching moment, and it kind of gives Laura a little bit of a pause. Like, you know, there's this mm-hmm. moment where she sort of looks in the in the window at her reflection. You know, there's almost the sense of, if I don't go through this door, you know, I, I don't have to do this, you know? Right. I don't have to partake in this. And it kind of gets hammered home when she's inside the roadhouse, and um, Julie Cruz is kind of crooning. She's got, like, looks like a little chipmunk or something. The big fluffy hair and all this, you know, it kind of makes her question, you know, is, is this what I want? I could just go home and not go through with all of this. But she decides to push on and, you know, somehow Donna's presence, you know, in the roadhouse kind of makes Laura decide that, well, fuck it. You know, I'm already here. What else am I going to do? She gives Jacques the signal that, you know, she's down for whatever. Yeah. And... Yeah, Jacques sends over a couple of couple of gross dudes. Want to know what I hated most about these dudes? What's that? They only called her little girl. Mm. I wanted to bash their heads in so much. It's such a <sighs> yeah. The old man in the at Hap's diner sort of says, you know, are you are you talking about that little girl who got murdered? Yeah, mm. the, the use of little girl is so gross and condescending and just icky like it just really you know it makes explicit that you know these girls are underage this is basically statutory rape is yeah, i mean about to laura says it so you guys want to fuck the homecoming green yeah it's uh, it's so gross dude at the start of this sort of interaction with these two guys it does seem like Laura's just really kind of going through the motions. Like she's just like, oh, okay, yeah. fuck, here we go again, kind of thing. And, you know, she even like pushes back on these guys disgustedly, like, what, you're going to give it to me? Like, you know, real, like, spitting in their face. But Donna kind of comes over and says, you know, let's boogie and kind of takes a shot. And Laura's just like, okay, all right, tried to warn you, tried to get you out of here. Let's, all right. If we're gonna do this, let's we're gonna do this. Smash cut to the worst bar on the planet. <laughs> like this next spot is so yuck. <laughs> like it's such a skeevy place. Not one inch of that room is sanitary at all. Let me ask you, Vinny, did did you get the sense that this 
this place in particular was not the roadhouse. Yeah, because they said, welcome to Canada. Yeah, it took me at least five views before I sort of picked up on that. <laughs> because I, I thought this was just like, you know, the the basement bar of the roadhouse right. or like, you know, the back room or whatever. Yeah. But no, apparently they crossed the border and are now in Canada at this horrible dive bar with this dirgy music, which is just so droning and monotonous and overwhelming. Everything has to be subtitled because it's, you know, you can't fucking hear a thing that anybody says. I really like that touch. Like, no, it just, because of course, I, you know, audio uh, editor or engineer on this is David Lynch. So like, that's purposeful. Like you're supposed to get the sense of, you can't really hear. So here's the subtitles, but just know the chaos in this entire room yeah. where you, you, all these people are so out of it. Uh, they're high or drunk on something and just, they don't care. It's yeah. just all about the insanity of that. Some interesting behind the scenes with this, apparently when they were you know when, when they were finishing this film and about to distribute it Lynch couldn't make up his mind about whether he wanted these sections subtitled or not mm. and by the time he'd kind of made a decision all of the um, 35 millimeter prints that were being sent to like Europe for screening they'd all been done without the subtitles <laughs> so Ooh. if you if you'd seen this movie on release in you know Britain or whatever, those entire scenes wouldn't have any subtitles. You wouldn't be able to hear a fucking thing anybody had said. And then a young Chris Nolan thought, aha! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think for a long time, like, the European DVDs, I think, were, you know, came from the same kind of prints. So, that, like, the, you know, those sections weren't subtitled, which was crazy to me. But anyway, let's move on. <sighs> So this scene goes on for a long time and the music just doesn't stop. It's just like this droning noise and there's women that are topless dancing around, there's skeevy cowboy looking motherfuckers. They meet up with Jacques who refers to himself as the Great Went, to which Laura replies, I am the Muffin, which to which Jacques <laughs> says something really gross. Um, yeah. Vinny, do you think you'd rather be the Great Went or a Muffin? God, um... Fuck, Mary kill. The Great Went, <laughs> a muffin, or, um... Um, Ava Unit 1. <laughs> I'm a fuck Ava Unit 1. Hell yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, um, they play this weird... The group play this weird sort of pass-the-beer game where they're just passing beers back and forth, and yeah. um, Skeevy Dude drops something into Donna's drink. Um, and they meet up with Renette. Yeah. Mm. And what does what does Renette kind of let slip? What does she say to Laura and Jacques? That it's the one year anniversary of Teresa Banks's death. Mm-hmm. And that how she was gonna get rich because she was blackmailing some guy. Hmm. And Jacques like, yeah, yeah. She, as a matter of fact, she one time asked me, "What's your father look like, um, Laura?" Yeah. And then Laura, that's the. Loris kind of snaps out of it and is like, wait, what? Yeah. I guess we can infer from this that uh, Teresa Banks put two and two together and realized that uh, Leland was Laura's father. Oh, perhaps is this the reason that she's no longer on this mortal coil? But before that, Laura has to go save Donna because uh, when the camera cut to what was happening to Donna, I was horrified. Mm, yeah. Ugh. Very gross. This section is not subtitled. 
So Laura's yeah. screaming at Donna, and it's, you know, if you listen really clear, carefully, it's stuff like, don't wear my jacket, and, um, you know, I told you not to wear my stuff, um, which take to mean, you know, I told you not to do the stuff that I do, or, you know, fall into right. this kind of, you know, I, I don't want you to be like me, basically. But yeah, like, Donna's just completely out of it. Um, the dude that is, you know, le- lecturing all over her is doesn't stop, and... Yeah, Laura has to basically drag her out of there. Hard cut to next morning. <laughs> next morning, Donna's not feeling great. <laughs> no. Yeah, she looks like she has been run over by a train. And I think Laura's kind of thankful that Donna doesn't remember any of this. And thank God. Right. But um, this next bit was really creepy. Leland comes in to sort of collect mm. Laura to go and um, just seeing them together, you know, having a, a friendly moment, you know, having you know a friendly hug kind of gives him a flashback to Laura and Renette in skimpy lingerie um, in the motel room. Just the the way that that kind of, you know, this this tender moment between two friends is kind of like perverted in that way is really gross. But it does kind of snap him out of his little reverie and he um, he takes Laura away. Um, then we have another iconic scene. Um, but yeah, Craig, when we hit that scene in the club, that's when I knew I need to take a shower after this. God. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So Laura and Leland go for a friendly weekend drive. <laughs> what what happens when they're when they're uh, on en route to meet Sarah for breakfast? So I was already just like just numb to everything that just transpired. So I'm like, okay, okay, what's gonna happen between Laura and Leland? Because something's tension's rising, so something's gotta happen. So we just see Leland drive, and then we see this erratic camper going behind them. Like, okay, this is this is this is gonna be something. Mm-hmm. So then it's just this camper going erratic, honking at them, and then they're all stuck at a red light. So then the camper goes around all of them through the intersection just so it could go next to Leland and it's Mike yelling at him yelling at Laura showing that he has the green ring and it's just Leland like just trying to stay calm trying to uh, not, not not stay calm just trying to take control of the situation honking flowing the accelerator mm. Laura smells something burning presumably it's the engine and it's just pure chaos mm. you know when we first see Mike kind of like you know barreling down the road behind them you kind of hear that little whooping sound that the arm makes sounds like a native american caricature you know that kind of like oh kind of noise which is interesting do you do you recognize the location of this intersection i was thinking was this the intersection where the kid got run over it is knew it well done interesting too because um you know at the front of that at the front of the traffic lights is an enormous truck (laughs) yeah yeah did you pick up any of what mike was yelling over the screeching of the horn and the accelerating and the yelling of leland did you catch any of what mike was saying yes because i turned on subtitles after the club scene (laughs) yes good so what was mike kind of yelling at him this is what he yelled you stole the corn. I had it canned over the store and miss the look on her face when it was opened. There was a stillness like the Foreman Formica tabletop. The thread will be torn, Mr. Palmer. It's him. It's your father. Yeah. So what do you make of all of that? <laughs> it's the corn is missing. The miss is maybe the old lady who was maybe going to hope for the corn and how she was shocked that it was gone. 
and that they were already at the table to consume the corn and how Mr. Palmer or Bob, how he needs to give it back or else things are going to go down. And it's him then going to Laura, look, it's your father. He's behind all of this. Mm. Okay. We'll put a pin in that um, because there'll be more references to corn later. One thing that struck me on this watch was that there's just these overlaid um, sounds of dogs barking and these yeah. quick insert shots of dogs, which is weird because, I mean, there's been no real references to dogs earlier in the set. There's, you know, it's not like dogs are a common symbol or anything in Twin Peaks. They're not like an owl or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, just these random shots of dogs. And I don't know if that was sort of diegetically in the scene like at the um at the mechanics or whatever but um yeah just added to the whole cacophony of noise and chaos that was going on all around them they pull into moe's mechanic or moe's motors i was laughing so hard mo because <laughs> i was just thinking the simpsons <laughs> yeah i need amanda hug and kiss um and <laughs> like the you know this this very you know, almost Jimmy Stewart looking kid comes out and he's like, Oh, you better be careful, he did look mister. Like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah. Oh. You're gonna overheat your engine there. Like you're real giving him the firm word. And um yeah, Leland's just like dumbstruck. He um yeah, they just sort of sit there for a sec. Leland kinda has these flashbacks to uh to all his in extracurricular activities with uh with Teresa, you know, including the time he wanted to arrange for her to you know party with some with, with her girlfriends really cool shot where he's you know he sort of does this thing where he you know puts his hand over her eyes and you know he's yeah. you know doing that and then you kind of get this you kind of get like the you know the the sound of Laura yelling dad dad and on the second sort of dad that she yells he still on the flashback kind of turns his head as if looking towards the sound so cool. Yeah, like just a really cool little little moment there. I really like that. But also the fact that Leland, after doing it with Teresa, one of the first things he says is, you look just like my Laura. Oh, yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. It's, yeah, it's really gross implications there. And even if Bob was in control at that point, it's still fucking gross. Ugh. There's another kind of flashback where we see that, um, you know, Leland's coming for his, you know, his foursome. Uh, he sort of peeks into the room and sees that Teresa's two girlfriends um, include Ronette and his daughter. And he sort of, you know, tries to hightail it out of there. Teresa runs into him. He chickens out and shoves a wad of cash in her hand and, and bails. I know, at least he paid them. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's commendable, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Um, a couple of a couple of questions for you, Vinny. Is it a th- is it a real thing in motels in the states that there's like an ice machine at the end of the hallway that you just go and get ice? Is it a thing? I have never seen that in an actual motel. Because I see it in like a thousand movies and stuff. People come out with like a you know they go to the ice machine to get a big thing of ice. I'm like, what the, what the fuck do you need that much ice for? Like, <laughs> like you go to a hotel, like you go to a motel, like not even a fancy hotel right. or with room service or whatever it's just a, a motel where you're in your own separate room and i mean who the hell needs that much ice that you could just go and get a bucket of ice like what for <laughs> I, just, I don't i've just never understood that anyway 
the scene the scene kind of ends with the kid comes out wearing the mask and doing this weird kind of like bird walk with a jump and a run around kind of kind of motion he does the bart man <laughs> everybody if you can do the bart man <laughs> shake bart your body man. in the bird um do you think leland sees the kid no, I don't think he does. I just think he's all, I'll get out of here, move, let's go. Because he does kind of do this, like, you know, look behind him. Um, but that might be just to see if Teresa's still looking at him, maybe. I don't know if he does, because the kid sort of, like, fades out um, of existence there. Do you recognize this motel? I assumed it was the same one that Mr. C pulled up to go talk to Philip Jeffries. Yes, it is. Well, it's the same location, at least. But um, right, yeah, it's the same uh, same kind of hotel, same motel. Keep saying hotel. So back in the car, Laura is kind of questioning Leland, and I love this little bit of acting from her when she's asking him. You know, did you come home last week? Mm-hmm. She kind of does it in a way where she's kind of like just this little trembling kind of thing. Like she's the way she's talking and just her mannerism. She's like you know shaking and trembling as if she's barely able to contain herself and she does this another time later on when she's you know basically tells leland to stay the hell away from her um she sort of does the same kind of same kind of technique uh, we also get to see about the it was leland who smashed the tv and killed Teresa. yes yes we do get confirmation of that and whether that was under the influence of bob or not we're not sure it could go either way. Yeah, honestly, yeah. Actually, I assume it probably was Bob because he put the letter under her fingernail. Oh, yeah, true. But Leland does have a motive for taking Ture- mm-hmm. taking Teresa out of the picture if she was blackmailing him. I mean, it would be an extreme thing to do, but he's, you know, <laughs> not exactly the most uh, mentally sound person. Also remember, this man's a lawyer. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, rich, prominent lawyer. Um, he could... Yeah, he could probably, you know, find a way out of a situation like that. I've got written in my notes here that Laura sees three kind of visions of the ring. I think this is back in her room. Um, She sees three visions of the ring and then kind of like a blue staticky light above her, which she kind of looks up at. And that seems to kind of indicate that Bob is kind of circling nearby. It's a very brief scene. Yeah. Uh, The next scene is that she's making out with Bobby a little bit. But not really, because why is she? Why is she there? For more drugs. There for the drugs. Cocaine's a drug. Um, she. <laughs> okay. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Um, yeah, she is there, basically trying to persuade Bobby to give her a little something, something to hold the mo- hold her over. That's when Bobby kind of, you know, he sort of, I think he flat out asks her, you know, are you only kind of here because I can you know, keep you well stocked and, and this stuff. And she doesn't deny it. Um, but Bobby is strangely okay with it. Like he sort of says, well, okay. You know, he's sort of, he's almost resigned to it. But he tells her he will pick her up later on at 11 o'clock um, so that presumably they can get wasted before they make their midnight rendezvous with uh, with Jacques dealer guy how stupid are they to just get completely hammered before going to meet a guy to get drugs Uh, yeah i mean not the smartest move i mean they're teenagers but like yeah like i mean come on man like you're you're literally about to go and get ten thousand dollars worth of hard drugs like you just just wait an hour you know like 
with a giant flashlight, which anyone can probably see from miles. Jesus, how how bright and big was that thing? Yeah, dude, it was crazy big. But I mean, it was probably the sole source of light for you know for lighting that scene um, <laughs> you know, when they were filming. So Laura's completely out of it. You know, she does this really cute. You know, oh, I found a pine cone. <laughs> Bobby, I found some dirt. <laughs> it just cracks me up. Yeah, Bobby's just sick of her shit at this point. Um, but then their guy arrives. Now, Vincent, do you recognize the guy? Was he at One Eyed Jacks? No. Well, I mean, damn. But then I, uh, I didn't recognize. Him. I was just thinking, hmm, who is he connected to? But uh, where's he from, Greg? This took me several uh, several watches to realize this, but uh, it's actually the shitty sheriff from Deer Meadow. Well, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Def- um, Deputy Cliff. Yeah. Uh-huh. Discount Andy, huh? Yeah, Discount Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, it took me a long time to realize that. So, yeah, it, it puts it all full circle with them being dirty cops and they're involved with drugs. Holy shit. Yeah. And we know that Teresa was sort of linked with Jacques. Yeah. And stuff, so... Even more interesting, the prophecy is fulfilled. Bobby killed a guy. Yeah. Now, what did you think of this? I thought, yeah, they were definitely going to get robbed, no matter what. But then just... How... (laughs) This man was stone-cold sober, yet Bobby was still able to pull his gun out and shoot him first. Yeah. Well, I think the guy's gun got kind of caught in his pocket or something. Like, like he was kind of fumbling for it, and Bobby was just... You know, so wired on the coke, presumably, that he just kind of, you know, was able to draw quicker. But very good blood squibs on that, like... Yeah. Just as good as, like, in the return with the head blood squib in Vegas, but like, oh, this is a very good blood squib work. Yeah. And there's that real quick insert shot of the head just exploding and, like, very visceral. And it's, it's, only, like, it's like half it's like a second It's like Thirst Upon a Time with Gendo, with the brain. Yeah. Pri- yeah, prior to the return... Um, this always struck me as a bit of a, like, a, like, what the fuck kind of scene. Right. Because thinking about Bobby as he is in the first couple of seasons, like, like a day or two after he fucking murders somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and very half-assedly tries to bury them by flicking dirt on them. God. But Laura's dead and he's, you know, trying to defend himself and, you know, and, you know, avert suspicion away from himself it always really stuck out to me that it felt a little bit out of place that you know they would make this decision that bobby would have murdered somebody yeah it always kind of struck me as weird yeah because like if anything you would set like a bobby murdering someone closer to how he's in the return he's action man he's ready for Mm. he's ready for a gunman outside a diner he's ready but i guess you didn't you didn't really have that experience though having seen the return first where they used footage from this where explicitly references that bobby killed a guy you kind of had that knowledge going into the original series it's yeah it's interesting so yeah, they half-heartedly try and bury this guy by flicking some dirt on him, um, and then gap it. There's a short scene with James, and fuck, whatever. Yeah, whatever. The next kind of significant scene is the one of, yeah, it's at nighttime. Leland is giving Sarah a glass of milk. Yeah. And this has always been creepy to me. It's, again, kind of what we were talking about before with, um, you know, Sarah being more complacent with ignoring the stuff that's happening under her nose 
it's kind of like they've got this little ritual going on that he sort of gives her this milk, which presumably is drugged. And, you know, she drinks about half of it and he kind of like does this sort of like, uh, 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 and, you know, you know, mm. pushes the rest of it down her throat, basically. And then she conks out. She has a vision of the horse. Vinny, I got a qu- another question for you. You know, when, you know, when you're sleepy and you don't, you know, you're, you're about to go to sleep um, and you just want to read something. Would you rather read an Evangelion manga or would you read a book about how to speak German? <laughs> well, Craig, let's see what book is right next to my bed right now. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, God. He's, he's, for those of you at home, he's just pulled out, um, you know, conversational German for... <laughs> <laughs> Conversational German for weebs. <laughs> it has Oscar on the cover. Yeah, well, there you go. You just got to think German while you're trying to synchronize with the <laughs> with the Ava. I know of all the books to have her. I, it's, I, <sighs> I, I didn't notice until this watch. I'm just like, fuck, that's a weird choice. <laughs> yeah. Like I would have done like War and Peace, like something thick that you know is boring. That's like, oh, no wonder she's asleep. Yeah, or even like. You know, like what kind of books would Sarah read? It would either be like a trashy, like Jackie yep. Collins novel or something, or hundred percent, or maybe some kind of book on spirituality or something. Maybe I, I don't know. Yeah, no, how to speak German is uh, <laughs> not at the top of that list. <laughs> anyway, we then get one of the creepiest shots, one of the creepiest scenes yeah. in the whole. If not just this film, perhaps any film ever put on celluloid. Um, and this is, of course, the whooshing of the, of the ceiling fan. Bob slowly creeping into the room through the window, stalking like a velociraptor or something. He's animalistic. There's this low kind of droning tone going through the scene. Uh, it's kind of soundtracked by the, the whooshing ceiling fan that sort of woof, 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 woof. and yeah he creeps up on her laura's almost in a you know if it was any other context like her movements and her expressions would indicate that she's maybe having a sexual dream yeah. did you get that kind of sense like it was because it was a type of bubbly that she wasn't giving in the scene prior with her like being like oh a pine cone it was a definitely different kind of like um like a lure of something. Yeah. Like the motions and the, um, you know, it looks kind of like what you might see in softcore pornography, you know, like just the real sort of sensual movie. I've never watched stuff. that. No, you only go for the hard stuff. Eh? Um, <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> but um, and then Bob's kind of on top of her and he's kind of like, you know, got this real like he's just grunting and heaving and, you know, doing this his creepy smile. She kind of does this thing where she's kind of cradling his head and, you know, doing, you know, moving his head around. And it's interesting. There's some shots. It's kind of cut between shots where it's clearly Bob's head that you can see, like his gray hair. And then mm-hmm. there's some, like it cuts between that and some shots where it's clearly Leland's head. Like you can kind of see Leland's yeah. dark hair. So it's kind of like going back and forth. And then... You know, she sort of does her whole, she wakes up, she sort of does her whole, who are you? Who are you? And then she screams when she sees her dad's face. Mm. And the way that scream just kind of like 
reverbs and echoes around and you know transitions into the next shot of a very soggy looking bowl of cereal Ugh, what did you think of this scene the second i saw bob on top of her i knew what was going to happen and the second it happened just the look on leland's face in that moment and then yeah just the transition to just breakfast that that's probably what the worst part of it all because it's just more of the abuse Mm. you still gotta wake up in the same house with the same people yeah he's just having cereal like nothing yeah it's a new day this cycle's gonna start over and over again yeah very gross I think this is where Sarah kind of takes a drag on her cigarette as if to sort of block out kind of what's happening. It's might be. Did we miss a bit? Which bit are you thinking about? No, I think I think I think we've got some. Yeah, we've got some stuff mixed up. I think this is the scene where Bobby and Laura are making out. I think I think I got that mixed up before. Either way, there's a scene with Laura and Bobby. Well, both of them are. The first one was at school and them kissing. Them That's and right. Drugs, and then this yeah. one is at is in on the couch. That's right. Yeah. No. I, it's basically I the this, same scene. Though. Yeah, I got those two mixed <laughs> up in my head. Never mind. Let's move on. Later that night, Laura goes to her room. She she does a line of coke on her bed. Yep. <laughs> also present, a whole lot of pills, a bottle of liquor, and a pack of cigarettes. Um, she's already pretty out of it. Um, she's kind of struggling to put on her stockings. She's wearing what looks like a one-eyed Jacks uniform. She's struggling to put her stockings on, and then when the phone rings, she kind of holds it the wrong way. <laughs> she yeah. holds the <laughs> receiver up to her ear and stuff. But it's James, ugh, and she agrees to meet him in 15 minutes, and then sort of puts the phone down and says, oh, God, why did I agree to meet him? Which mm. I can totally understand. 100%. And then we get the flashback that's in the return. Yeah. Well, before that, she notices that uh, her little picture on the wall, um, the angel oh, right. kind of vanishes, which means something. It means that she's falling through space. Um, yeah, James pulls up in probably the least conspicuous manner possible, you know, in the middle so of the night loud, with his loud idiot. fucking motorcycle. Um, on a quiet suburban street and yeah like you said we get the same scene from episode 17 of the return 17 but it's in full color this time not in black and white james james sucks man james sucks so so bad fuck this guy like they end up on you know in in the woods he's telling her that he's she he loves her and she loves him and you always hurt the one you love and laura's basically like dude get a fucking clue she literally slaps him (laughs) yeah and like you know flips him off and all this kind of stuff she's trying to push him away she's clearly going through some shit and he's still pushing himself on her and like no laura we're in love Uh, 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 fucking family then then she we get to that scene where she looks off into the middle distance and screams which which in the return is because she's seen cooper i think this this time watching it though i think the original intention with that is that because it's just after she's kind of done her bit about how Bobby killed a guy, she looks over and screams. I think she's probably looking into the woods and maybe his body is like nearby or, mm. you know, maybe just the sight of the woods has made her remember what happened and she's just gets spooked right. by it. But she kind of ends that scene by saying the line that... um James mentions in season one, you know, how, you know, you don't know me, not even Donna knows me, you know, which yeah. is really cool, sort of tying that back in and sort of um, 
you know, leading up to that, you know, setting that up again. Laura runs off and she meets up with um, the dynamic trio Leo, Jacques, and Ronette. Um, there is this cut. Uh, there is this scene in the return, you know, in this sort of same moment where they're just kind of standing there waiting for her, and she doesn't arrive because she's walking off with Coop somewhere. Um, and I wondered if, you know, that scene that they used in the return was just some scrap of footage that they shot. You know, when they were filming this, like, you know, that just, and because that's, that shot doesn't appear in this film. And I wonder if it was just kind of a, like a scrap of footage that Lynch had lying around and he just thought, oh, that would be interesting and just sort of put it in there. Yeah. So they're in the cabin and this is the first time I've noticed this, but the, uh, the music that's playing is the same as the music from the, the bar, the Canadian bar that they go to. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah. That horrible fucking music. It's oh, so, God. So nauseating. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot happens in these next, uh, in these scenes. Oof. Yeah, so what what kind of happen? what are the main points that happen here? Um, uh, Leland kind of arrives, um, spies on them. Jacques ties Laura up. Mike also is kind of en route. Jacques goes out to take a leak or something and uh, Leland smacks him over the head and knocks him out and Leo just dips like an asshole yeah he just sort of goes out sees what's happened he, he kind of has like this smirk like oh Jacques can't handle his liquor or whatever and then he realizes that he's like bleeding profusely and he's like oh fuck okay <laughs> I'm out and just you know Laura even like you know is like asking him to untie her he's just like shut up and he's yeah, out then you get the shot of the bird listening like oh okay yep the bird yeah there we go setting that up and yeah, Bob comes into the room. Laura is Laura's reaction to seeing him is just like <gasps> just so oh, such good acting again. And yeah, he drags them to the train car. Talking about big ass flashlights. Um, this yeah. weird, weird sort of moment, eh? Like he's like he's leading them. Like he's clutched them both. He's kind of like leading them through the woods. And it's like there's someone in front of him with a flashlight because they're. The flashlight is illuminating them, but he's not holding the flashlight. It's just kind of like no. it's floating in space above them or something. Like, also, I, I could believe they're just jogging in place because, like, the movement of him, like, just... It's very, like, 1930s evil villain just with the money, like... <laughs> yeah, but it has, it has... It gives it a really cool sort of vibe and, like, just menacing vibe. There's this really cool kind of discordant music going on and it i think it was similar to one of the earlier scenes i think probably the convenience store scene the meeting scene i think like just mm. this real sort of like <laughs> kind of music like yeah and yeah inside the train car a whole lot of shit goes down he lines yeah you know, he sort of sets positions the girls in a certain way and puts a mirror underneath laura so that when she looks into it she can see bob's face flash up and cause her to scream there's a really cool moment like it's again overwhelming soundscape in all of this and there's that real moment where it sort of builds to this crescendo as ronette's kind of sitting there praying for yeah save safety and then it just cuts out it's completely silent and you see ronette's angel just briefly and yeah just that hard cut to just complete silence is just it's so effective I love it. Yeah, Ronette's angel supposedly frees her or, you know, undoes yep. her shackles or whatever. Yeah, she eventually gets knocked out and kicked out of the train car. Mike arrives and throws the ring through the open door. Laura, she puts that ring 
on her finger. Yeah. Which prompts Leland to say what? He said... What did he say? He said, don't make me do this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which, at that point, Bob kills her. And there's this, like, swelling church music. Like, you know, like a, you know, requiem or something is happening. Really intense, you know, build up. Again, this is something I've only just noticed as well, is that there's this really interesting, it's like a point of view shot from Laura's corpse. Yeah. Of, you know, him being, him wrapping her up in the plastic. And then cutting back and forth between Leland and Bob is like, oh, that's cool, but also so creepy. It's interesting. I don't know if I've ever seen a point of view from a dead person, <laughs> you know, through yeah. a dead person's eyes. It's really interesting. And yeah, he drags her out of the, out of the train car. He puts her on the onto the river and supposedly to float down and end up in Pete's backyard. And he heads into the woods towards the sycamore trees. We also get this weird insert shot as he's going through the red curtains. We get this weird insert shot where it's what can you, well, describe, describe what we see here. It's again, that pale face of just the paleness, the black lipstick and the darkness on his face, the similar with Laura and Harold, like, mm. huh? Yeah, um, and we end up in the red room. Um, Mike and the arm are sitting side by side, and this is kind of the moment where it becomes really clear that the arm says that he is the arm earlier in the film. But this kind of becomes clear that this is Mike's disembodied arm, <laughs> mm-hmm. because they don't speak until they're kind of connected. Like he, you know, reaches over and in the place of the missing arm, and right. then they kind of speak in unison. And they say, Bob, I want all my Garmon Bozia. Which the subtitles explain that Garmon Bozia is... Pain and and sorrow. Pain and sorrow. So, is that what you thought it would be when I asked you this question last time? (laughs) Nope. Not... No idea. What what happens after they've made this demand? Leland then floats up, almost he's made out of helium. Bob touches a part of his stomach where on the shirt indicates there's blood. He absorbs it, mm-hmm. then he chucks the blood on the ground, then that just evaporates. Mm-hmm. And what's the next and thing the, we see? And then we see someone eating corn. I think it's the arm. Mm-hmm. And then... A monkey, the monkey from earlier, it's all this noise, but he mouths something, and the subtitles told me that he said, Judy. Hmm. Okay. So let's take this step by step. So if Garmin Bosia is pain and sorrow, can we infer that then that Bob is taking pain and sorrow from Leland when he does that whole absorbing the blood thing. I mean, that... he, st- he still goes on to do evil shit, so maybe he doesn't take all of it, but... Okay. If if that is the case, you know, if, if he does absorb some of the pain and sorrow, whose pain and sorrow do you think he's taking? Do you think he's taking Laura's pain and sorrow that Leland has inflicted and Bob has kind of... thing, or Or is he taking Leland's pain and sorrow? I think he's taking Leland's because it makes me think of the scene in uh, original series where he's like confessing that he killed her and it's all coming back to him. So it's almost Mm. like that was gone from him because of what Bob just did right there. So maybe it's him losing that sorrow so he can actually 
function as a person about town after the events of today. Mm. Interesting, yeah. What What's up with the cream corn? It's because cream corn is what Mr. C throws up when they're trying to get him back in the red room. So it's like, is that an important component of creating a doppelganger? Because doesn't there's also that when Dougie gets absorbed well and Cooper shows up out of the outlet next to the pile of cream corn that Dougie just threw up. I think, and this is having watched the film a few times and, you know, done extensive, you know, nerdy research into this kind of bullshit. I think what's happening here is that the concept of Garmin Bosia is that it's pain and sorrow and that the lodge entities feed on it. And I think that the creamed corn is kind of like a physical manifestation of it. So when Bob and Mike were, when they were partners and they were out killing together, they would go and, you know, kill people to basically harvest pain and sorrow, which they would then, you know, take back to the lodge and it would then sort of get transferred into, you know, it would become creamed corn. And this is why um, you know, Mike was saying stuff around, you know, you stole the corn and, you know, I had it canned above the store and all this kind of stuff. I think that what happened was that Bob kind of went rogue and basically kept all the Garmin Bosia for himself. Um, and he wasn't sharing it with the other lodge entities like he was supposed to, uh, which is why, you know, the arm kind of reprimands him you know, Bob, I want all my Garmin Bosia and all that kind of stuff. So I think that the cream corn is the physical manifestation of people's pain and sorrow. In the real world, is creamed corn the worst type of corn, in your opinion? Absolutely. It's so fucking gross, man. I hate it. I love corn. I love corn. Yes, me too. Cream corn, ugh. Nasty shit. Why does the monkey whisper Judy? It, is it is it because she's watching all this? Is uh, That's the only way I can interpret it. Like, she's seeing all that transpiring, and she's taking it as a hint that she can continue on doing her evil shit in the background, but, like, Potentially. why the monkey? I think it's important to note also, I mean, there's no, there's no answer for any of this bullshit, but right. I think it's important to note that... Um, the concept of Judy that we get explained in the return was might not necessarily have been what Judy was when those mm, scenes right. were shot for the film. So who knows? The best explanation I've got, uh, this is kind of more sort of behind the scenes stuff, is that Firewalk With Me was originally intended as the first film in a trilogy of Twin Peaks films. So some of the stuff that was set up in the film was going to be expanded on in subsequent films so and especially a lot of the stuff around philip jeffries and um and all that kind of all that kind of stuff i think it was going to look at more into the lore around the lodge and um probably would have picked up some of the threads from the series as well around cooper's doppelganger and all this kind of stuff potentially judy could have been something completely different we don't know and we'll never know because we don't live in that timeline that's something i was going to ask you because like was the idea of making this movie that's like okay if this is a hit we'll go back to tv but now you're telling me that this would lead into more movies yeah i mean that was the that was the original plan the way it went i could be completely wrong on this and if anyone listening knows this um you know feel free to yell at your podcast app um around this but um 
I think what was happening was before the show was cancelled and its second after its second season, oh, there were plans for how a third season would go in the yeah. early 90s. Obviously, the show did get cancelled. Um, Lynch went back and wrote and directed this film and also wrote a bunch of extra stuff that would have been fleshed out into another couple of films. I think he secured funding for three films on the condition that you know the first one did well, which it did not. So, And I feel like he probably recycled a lot of these ideas for the return. So I think that's how it kind of goes. Vinny, we're up to our final scene. Yeah. The epilogue of this film. The final scene takes place in the Red Room. While Laura's sitting down, Cooper is there. Did you notice what Laura was wearing in this scene? Yeah, she was all done up in a dress. And isn't that similarly the same dress where it's the first episode of The Return? Hmm. And I think it's also similar, if not the same, as the dress that she was wearing in Cooper's first dream. Yeah, where the it's room. the double chair and she steps over and just screams. No, no, not that scene. No, I mean, the very first sort of dream that he has about the Red Room, um, where, you know, oh, yeah. you know, she's my cousin and her arms being back and all that kind of That's stuff. That's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that this is that version of Laura, is, you know, proper Black Lodge, or Red Room Laura, I guess. So he's kind of standing over her in a comforting way. Um, she kind of has a sorrowful look on her face. You kind of see this blue kind of staticky light flash on her face, which she sort of notices. And she sort of looks towards it and she's stunned by what she sees. It's a guardian angel. It's a guardian angel. She notices her angel. It cuts back to her still lit up. Uh, the blue light is kind of more intense and more staticky. And she kind of does this thing where she's slowly descends into laughter she's crying she sort of gets the sense of kind of relief i guess but she starts kind of giggling and then just full-on laughing the final shot which is kind of the well no, no i guess it's the second to last shot is kind of like you know looking down at laura and cooper and if you look really closely at her face she is absolutely losing her shit at something like she's laughing so hard at something and then the very, very final shot before the credits kind of fade in over it is she's not laughing so hard anymore, but she sort of has this shot as if she's come to terms with something or if she's kind of accepted something and she's complacent and she's, you know, complacent. She's um, content is the word. And then roll credits. Yeah. Like I took that that moment as she's free from all the bullshit she had to do. In order to feel something in life. She did all these things. Just to feel something. And mm -hmm. now this is confirmation that. She is no longer there. She can. She's not going to feel pain here. She doesn't truly understand why she's here. But just seeing the angel. She can just breathe. And have a sigh of relief. And then that just brings her to just. Pure bliss. Hmm. Very much in a state where she has realized that, you know, all the stuff that was going on in her life is not, you know, she doesn't have to face that anymore. And she's at peace. There is another reading of this ending, which I quite like. And if you humor me for a moment. It's okay, I'll humor you with something else, but here, go ahead. You asked me a little while ago off pod whether it was worth watching a <laughs> four and a half hour Twin Peaks video <laughs> called <laughs> Twin Peaks Actually Explained No Really. And people in the in the 
Twin Peaks community, um, you know, know this video, and um, it's it can yeah, you know, it's it's a little divisive. I love it. I think it's a, I think it's a great analysis. But one of the things that they sort of posit in that is that the ending, where she sees she sees that staticky blue light, and she sort of realizes something in that moment and laughs at the absurdity of it. The interpretation that was given in this video, which I think I kind of agree with, is that she, I think, is realizing that she is a fictional character on a TV screen. Hmm. Because think about, think about the beginning of the film, like the very, very first shot is that staticky, like it's sort of bookmarked by this kind of blue staticky light. Mm-hmm. And you find out that it's a TV that sort of gets smashed at the beginning. At the end, I don't know if this happens in real life, but, you know, in movies and stuff, if someone's watching TV, often the glow of the TV will be reflected back in their face. Right. It looks similar. And I wonder if she, in that moment, in the red room, is watching the TV show Twin Peaks and realizes that none of this was ever real. What do you wow. think of that? I say that's a hundred percent possible with this thing, and I, I yeah, it's also yeah, it's also another just freedom for her. Like, well, it's all over now. It's just reruns at this point, and mm. but now I'm out of it. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. I like that. Where Where were you going to go with what were you going to bring up? <laughs> so, Craig. The scene, it happens the exact same setup where it's her in the red room, this blue light, and then you get a hint that it's an angel coming, the blue light coming down. Oh, God, slowly. I know where you're going to go with this. <laughs> Fuck you. Keep going, <laughs> keep going, keep going. Her angel's coming down. It's blue. You, you, you need to focus a little bit to see what it is. And it's Ramiel. <laughs> oh. Yeah, exactly. The sound Fuck comes in. You. <laughs> Fuck you. Fuck <laughs> you. Oh. God, if anyone, if people at home could only see how much you've cracked yourself up with this bullshit. <laughs> you were just, he's, he's leaned away from the mic, but he's absolutely cackling with laughter. <laughs> And now he's having a coughing fit because he's laughed so hard. <laughs> as soon as you said the word angel, I was like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Shit. Craig, the show's called Twin Peaks Evangelion. I gotta get the Evangelion somewhere. Oh. <laughs> Okay. Well, at least we'd never seen in a hospital <laughs> in a locked door. <laughs> um, right. Um, oh, God, we've been talking for a while. Um, I think it's time to wrap this up, Vinny. Have you any final yeah. thoughts about Twin Peaks Firewalk with me? You can firewalk us through it. I will defend my watch order of this entire series because 
Yeah. I think this is a fantastic thing to say goodbye to Twin Peaks as far as new content for me because, mm-hmm. my God, what a journey this movie is. And it, it enhances the return for me, which was initially got my attention. It grabbed me by just being a solo piece. Mm-hmm. But now that I have the entire puzzle all together, I just love it all even more. Sure, season two is shit at points, but I think... It's all come full circle, and I just love Twin Peaks as a whole. Nice. Season one, season two, Firewalk with Me, The Return. What order would you put them in? Like, what? How would you rank them? The Return, Firewalk with Me, one, two. Yeah, I think I'd probably do the same. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, that was less eventful of a question than I thought it would be. <laughs> um. Any other, any other lingering thoughts on, on this, on David Lynch, on um, on Twin Peaks in general? Any any Just, final things? Well, it's the poetry of it all because look, Craig, I will not lie to you. When we initially talked about doing this, I'm like, no, Craig, believe me. If someone likes Twin Peaks, they'll like Evangelion. That was just me talking out of my ass because every review <laughs> I've ever seen is like, hey, Evangelion's just the Twin Peaks of anime. It, but no, now that we're at it, like, yeah, this really is j- just so similar. Just mm. the initial run of TV, the movie that is like, oh, my God, what the fuck? And then the return series is just yeah, the, takes the, it the to distant a whole nother sequel. level. Yeah. Yeah. The distant sequel that takes it to crazy new places. Yeah. We we hit a gold mine in terms of what we we both separately in our lives got attached to. Mm. We then connected through online, through the internet, and then we shared our thing with each other, and we both resonate with it equally. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's a it's a hell of a thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It is insane. I mean, I tend to watch Twin Peaks: The Return. You know, I try and watch it once a year. Just. You know, just to sort of rewatch it. Uh, I don't watch the earlier seasons as much, um, but mm. I go back to this film every so often, and it's just stunning. Like it's a stunning piece of cinema. The performances, the direction, the sound, the just the the mood, and just the intense, heavy lore of it all is just breathtaking. It's a stunning piece of cinema, and yeah, I love it. I just can't say enough good things about it. Yeah. Right. We've been talking for a long time, Vince, Vincenzo. Let's let's finish this off, eh? Yeah. Do you have any music that you want to that you want to play? Yes, cuz the second the credits rolled and it my screen went to black cuz it was over, I knew exactly what song I wanted. Mm-hmm. The song I want our listeners to listen to is Blasphemous Rumors by Depeche Mode. Ooh, Depeche Mode. I think if I'm not mistaken, um, Lynch directed a couple of Depeche Mode videos. I'm going to Google that and cut the sentence out if it's incorrect, (laughs) because I don't want to sound like a fucking idiot. Craig here from the edit suite. Uh, Just a little update. Um, Apparently there's no Depeche Mode videos recorded by David Lynch. That is all. Anything else that you wanted to... Want to hear? No, just that that one is like this song with this movie is perfect. Nice, cool. I've got four songs. <laughs> I've got 
I want to hear the first song I want to hear is the song Fire by um, Kids See Ghosts. I know we don't talk about Kanye these days, but um, Kids See Ghosts is a fantastic album. The second song that I would like to play is Walk This Way by Run DMC and Aerosmith. The third song I would like to play is called With by some artists that I can't actually remember, um, but I searched on Spotify earlier today. And the final song that I'd like to play is Me and the Devil by Gil Scott Heron, because it's the best song with the word me in the title that I found. Um, and yeah, it fucking rules. Like Honestly, like put on some good headphones and crank this up in your dial. It's, it's awesome. All right. Oh, do you know, Vincent, that there's actually more to Firewalk With Me? Wait, what 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 other piece could be to fire walk with me yeah interesting there are some missing pieces to this film but you know what i think we'll have to talk about that another time see you everybody fire walk with us more fan service <laughs> um oh Vinny, you you did something on social media for this podcast didn't you <laughs> yes now ladies and gentlemen Dear listener, if you look at the show notes to this podcast, you'll look at our email and see it says TP semicolon E. Well, uh, who would do that? Has bugged me ever since it was pointed out to us by our dear friend Richard. <laughs> so, in the middle of the night, one day as I couldn't sleep, I created an Instagram account. That you can follow. It is TP, the word colon, letter E, podcast on Instagram. Mm. Not to be confused with the um, with the David Lynch approved uh, line of perfume, um, TP Cologne. <laughs> you give me shit for my Ramiel joke. And okay. this is what you bring to the table. <laughs> I have children. I'm allowed to make dad jokes. All right. Um, yes. Yeah, so follow TP colon E on uh, the old Instagram. Um, we've been doing a lot of, well, a lot of, um, we've been doing a couple of uh, Twin Peaks and Evangelion crossover memes and just other bullshit that we find online so um yeah follow that if you if you want otherwise do send us an email we're at tp semicolon e at gmail.com otherwise send us um a physical letter care of the fat trout trailer park deer meadow and or twin peaks 90210 usa um oh boy this is a long episode um vinnie Thanks again for your time, man. And um, I'm glad that you had a better time watching this film than Tarantino did. I'll talk to you next time. Gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble.